almost exactly two years ago from today, right around the time when we were all being locked down for the very first time at the beginning of the pandemic here in North America, a middle school writing teacher named Kitty O'Meara, O'Meara in Wisconsin wrote a poem called, And the People Stayed Home. And this is what it says, And the people stayed home, and they read books, and listened, and rested, and exercised, and made art, and played games, and learned new ways of being, and were still. And they listened more deeply. Some meditated, some prayed, some danced, some met their shadows. And the people began to think differently, and the people healed. And in the absence of people living in ignorant, dangerous, mindless, and heartless ways, the earth began to heal. And when the danger passed and the people joined together again, they grieved their losses and made new choices and dreamed new images and created new ways to live and heal the earth fully as they had been healed. <laughs> it's, it's almost laughable now with the 2020 of hindsight, to listen to her optimism, to her hope-filled naivety about what could possibly happen if we all took these pandemic moments that back then we were just getting into and we learned to be different kinds of people. Oh, how things could be different. And now you read the poem and you think, well, she got just about everything wrong except for one line, one line she got mostly right. Some met their shadows, <laughs> changed the sum to just about everybody. And I think you've pretty well hit the bullseye. That's what this past two years has been about. It hasn't been this beautiful vision of reawakening that Kitty O'Meara imagined two years ago. What we've experienced instead is what psychologists are calling a mass trauma event. A trauma event is, is a negative event that you experience that significantly disrupts your sense of the world for the worse, disrupts your sense of yourself and of others and of life. It makes you different. Let me think about a child experiencing abuse, God forbid, whether sexual or verbal or emotional or physical. The child is experiencing a traumatic event that changes their sense of themselves and their worth, that changes their sense of others and their safety, that changes their sense of life and its predictability. They are changed as people. That's what we've been experiencing for the last two years, meeting our shadows in the midst of a mass trauma event that has left none of us unchanged, the kind of mass trauma event that will have psychologists writing about it for the next couple decades. These past two years have traumatized us in different ways and to different degrees. These past two years traumatized COVID victims who were abandoned and isolated in hospitals to die alone or who have been forced to live with the disability of long COVID. It, it traumatized their families who were unable to be with them and comfort them or in the worst case scenarios, unable to properly celebrate their lives with a real Funeral. It traumatized healthcare workers. My wife is one. 
a respiratory therapist who literally works at the head of the front line of fighting COVID. And she says these days the hospital is filled with PTSD among the workers. She she sent me a meme the other day as a respiratory therapist, and the meme said, a respiratory therapist is someone who withdraws life support until they are dead inside. And she said, this is it. It is traumatized people who've been forced into isolation, people with disabilities or who are immunocompromised for whom the public spaces are still not safe who have never come out of lockdown. It isolated children from their friends at school. It isolated adults from their communities and churches. It traumatized public health officials who were attacked for trying to keep our community safe. And in the same way, it traumatized sincerely vaccine-hesitant families who were attacked for making our communities in danger, even though they were just trying to keep their families safe. It has traumatized people with economic outcomes. It has traumatized people with toxic loneliness and isolation. It has traumatized uh, people who have lost their jobs and lost friends. It has, this has been traumatic, disrupting everything that we've thought we've known about ourselves and each other and life, which is why that we thought almost two years, two years and one week, since the first time we were locked in our houses by COVID, we would take a few weeks just to think about the impact these last two years have had on us and to talk about what it looks like to walk with Jesus and each other through them, whether it's through the, the anxiety and the weariness of languishing as the result of COVID or the polarization and conflict we've experienced or the grief that has grown out of our loss or what we're talking about this morning, the impact all of this has had on our mental health. These are conversations, friends, that we need to have not just on mornings like this, but with each other in ongoing ways. We need to talk about things like mental health, even though, you know, Bell gives us permission one day a year, every January, to talk about our mental health issues as a part of an advertising campaign. I'm not cynical at all about it. I can't believe that that hasn't fixed the issue. This is something we need to talk about. You know why? Because one in five Canadians experience mental health challenges. One in five. I don't know who you're watching this with right now. If there are four other people in your living room or if you're sitting in a row with four other people in one of our locations, take a look up and down the road. Statistically speaking, one of the five of you could experience mental health challenges this coming year. And by the way, if everyone else in your row looks like they're doing okay, <laughs> boop, it's you. <laughs> Another way to think about mental health challenges, if you're in one of our locations, this won't work as well at home, but if you're in one of our locations and you're 40 years of age or older, put your hand in the air. I am 49 in a couple months, 40 years of age or older, put your hand up. Now look around the room, 50% of the people whose hands are in the air have already experienced some kind of mental health challenge whether depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or eating disorders or uh, substance abuse or their lives have been touched by suicide, 50%. And by the way, the numbers get worse as soon as they intersect with some of the systemic inequalities that we experience in our culture, whether racism 
or you know, discrimination or poverty or homelessness or gender-based violence or violence against indigenous people or communities, those numbers all go up. And then that was just, that's just all true even in the before times. And then COVID made it all worse. 36% of Canadians report having mental health challenges and 66% of them say it's getting worse. 23% of Canadians, a quarter of the people in the room where you are right now are battling with depression and only 12% say that they're happy. Friends, this is stuff we need to be talking about. Not so we can solve it in a sermon on a Sunday morning, but because we need to be talking about it. And you know why we don't? Because our, our culture has decided that when it comes to healthcare, with this particular organ, we are going to shame and stigmatize and exclude people whose healthcare issues happen in their skull. Right? We don't do that with other organs. My wife uh, has a chronically collapsing right lung. It has collapsed dozens of times. She's had innumerable medical interventions to try and correct it, and it just won't fix. This is something she's going to live with for the rest of her life. And nobody has ever shamed her or stigmatized her because her right lung, this organ, keeps not functioning the way other people's organs do. But we do it with this one. And the sad thing is that it's worse in the church. The Reverend Dr. Sarah Griffith Lund is a minister of disabilities and mental health justice in a major denomination in the States. And she writes this, when mental illness is viewed strictly as a spiritual disease, God is often viewed as the one who is in charge of administering mental illness as a punishment. Viewing mental illness only as a spiritual disease contributes to the stigma and shame of people who suffer from mental illness. And it's tragic that Christian communities, the very communities in which sufferers seek compassion, acceptance, understanding, healing, and love can be the communities that inflict the most harm. That for some reason in the church, we have decided that there is something spiritually wrong with somebody who battles with their mental health and we shame them and exclude them and stigmatize them. And friends, this is not how it should be. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus was being attacked by some people for hanging out with folks who were stigmatized in their culture, folks who did not deserve to be included with everybody else in the spiritual community. And in Luke chapter 5, 31, Jesus says this. It says, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Jesus says, you know who I'm going to prioritize in the way that I spend my time? You know who I'm going to prioritize in, in, in giving out compassion and acceptance and understanding and healing and love? The people who need it the most, period. There's another part of the New Testament where it says, the people who are usually thought of as the weakest ought to be elevated with special honor in the community. This is the way that it ought to be. Mental health is not some unique or spiritual, uniquely spiritual thing. Mental health is the same as physical health. It only pertains to the organ that sits inside of our skulls, period. 
Mental health diagnosis isn't a reason for shame. It's simply information that helps you take care of yourself and each other better. And so here's what I would want to say. I want to, you know, say something first to people who struggle with mental health challenges, and then I want to talk to people who live with and love those who struggle with mental health challenges. Here's what I want to say to people who struggle with mental health challenges. You are not your diagnosis. You're not. And there's nothing wrong with you. In John chapter 9, there's a story. It says, as Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that, this, that he was born blind, this man or his parents? And Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. The disciples asked the same question that we usually ask, or we too often ask, when we come across somebody who is grappling with mental health struggles. Who sinned, right? Like, what? why is this person so spiritually broken? Is it their fault? Is it the fault of a broken home? Like, what is the matter with this person? And Jesus' answer is, nothing's wrong. There's no spiritual brokenness here. He says, this is simply an opportunity for the beauty of God's goodness and greatness to be put on display in this person's life. Now, if you know the story in John chapter 9, you know that Jesus goes on to heal this particular individual, but there's lots of folks in the New Testament who, just like this man, are a living opportunity for the beauty of God's goodness and greatness to shine through their life who never experience healing. It's not in the healing that God's beauty shines forward. It's in our humanity, our God-filled humanity. That's who you are. Not a spiritually broken person, but an opportunity for the beauty of God's goodness and greatness to shine into the world. You are not your diagnosis. See, the problem with these diagnoses, they're helpful and they can know, help us know how to take care of ourselves better. But the problem with these labels is that once you stick a label on somebody, hello, my name is depression, you know, it can be hard to peel that label off. And even if you can get it off, it often labels leave residue behind, right? So instead, we got to be careful what labels we put on people. And so let's start by using the labels that God puts on us, like in Colossians chapter 1 where it says, yet now God has reconciled you to God's self through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, God has brought you into God's own presence. And here are the labels. You are holy. You are set aside as God's special possession and given the purpose of living God's unique purpose for your life in the world. You are holy. You are blameless. The word means perfect and flawless, just as you are. You are perfect and flawless, just as you are. And the third one, it says, as you stand before him, faultless, without a single fault, pure and impeachable. Those are the labels that God slaps on you. You are holy, God's special possession to be used for God's unique purpose for your life. You are blameless. You are perfect and flawless just as you are, and you are uh, faultless. You are pure and impeachable because of what Jesus has done in your life. Wear those labels instead. 
Or let's just embrace our core identity in 1 John chapter 1. See what kind of love God, our father and mother, has given to us that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. You know who you are? You are beloved by God and you are embraced as God's children. That's who you are and nothing else. Your mental health diagnosis is simply health information that you have so that you can take better care of yourself and the people around you can take care of you too. And so how do we take better care of ourselves? I mean, we're not going to fix anything this morning. I'm just going to give you four pieces of advice. Number one, prioritize every day. Prioritize your emotional well-being. Do something that floods your body with endorphins. You know, choose joy, whether that's, whether that's the relief of crying or eating chocolate or going for a hike or hanging out with friends or listening with, to music, like reading a book. Do something that fills you with joy every day. Prioritize your actual physical health. Eat three meals and make sure they're nutritious and exercise and get sleep. And if you're tired, listen to your body. If your body says you need to rest, then by God, clear out space in your schedule to rest. That's how the body heals. Prioritize uh, getting health care, whether that's from a trained therapist or from a physician who can assess and diagnose and prescribe medication. Take your meds. <laughs> In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Apostle Paul's writing to his younger men mentee, and he writes, Don't drink water anymore, but use a little wine because of your stomach problems and your frequent illnesses. The Apostle Paul says, Listen, I know you struggle with GI issues, and ancient healthcare would have said, Take some wine for that. He prescribes medication. And maybe your doctor has too. Take your meds. I heard, I heard somebody say recently that being bipolar is like being an adult that doesn't know how to swim. Yeah, it's a little embarrassing and there's some places you can't go. <laughs> but that's why water wings exist. And she said, she was bipolar. She said, if you just take your water wings, you can go wherever you want. Prioritize your emotional well-being. Prioritize your physical well-being. Prioritize health care. And prioritize community being with people you love. And this is what I would want to say to those of us who live with or love those who face mental health challenges. You have the opportunity to be Jesus to them. I heard about this really neat study a little while ago. They took three groups of participants and, and they brought the first group of a participant to, to one at a time to the bottom of a very large hill. And they said, you're going to climb this hill. How high do you think it is? And they looked up and they said, I think it's about 100 meters on average. And they took them away and they brought another set of participants. And they said, they put on a 50-pound backpack. And they said, you're going to climb this hill. How high do you think it is? And they said, whew, that's got to be at least 200 meters. And then they took them away and they brought a third set of participants. And they put the 50-pound backpack on them. And they brought a friend. And they said, the two of you are going to climb this hill together. How high do you think it is? And they said, probably only 100 meters. Do you get it? 
together we can get through it. I, I know the truth of this because a couple years ago, Krista and I were on Vancouver Island and she suggested that we do a hike called the 50-40, which I knew nothing about and regretted later. It's a three and a half kilometer hike straight up the side of a mountain. You gain a, a thousand meters in elevation, 3,300 feet. Here's a view of, of close to the top of the of the 50-40 hike. Actually, here's a picture of me. This is as high as I got on the hike, almost to the top. You can see my knee brace where my arthritic knee that doesn't have an ACL was throbbing in pain because my wife presumably hates me. But here's the thing. I am nearly 50 years old, have an arthritic knee that doesn't have an ACL, and I climbed the 50-40. You know why? Because Krista did it with me. I would have never done it on my own, but she did it with me. And guess what? The hill didn't go away and it didn't become smaller and it didn't become less steep and the hike didn't become any less painful. I couldn't walk for four days, but I did it for one reason, because she did it with me. And friends, in Matthew 18, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. Jesus says, if we come together as community in the spirit of Jesus, the wounded savior, and we live the compassion, acceptance, understanding, healing of love of Jesus into each other's lives, we can get through it together. We will encounter the presence of God no matter what we're going through. And so if you live with or love somebody who's battling with mental health right now, here's what you can give them. Number one, you can pray is pray. Now, that's not going to solve everything. 50% of evangelical Christians think that the only way to deal with mental illness is to pray. It's a good idea. It doesn't solve everything. In Luke 11, it says, how much more will the heavenly father and mother give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We pray for the presence of God in the midst of what we're going through, and that actually matters more than healing. We can pray. We can offer our presence Not our opinions, not our ideas, not our suggestions, not our solutions, not our amateur therapy and diagnoses, not our prescriptions for what they should do to get better, not saying, you know, if you ask me, no one asked you. No one needs that. What they need is your compassionate, accepting, understanding, healing, and loving presence just to be with them. In in empathy, which is clinically proven to calm chaos in people's souls. Our prayers, our presence, we offer them practical support. Don't say, what do you need? Because they don't, especially if they're in crisis, they don't know what they need. Say, would it be helpful if I ran your errands, did your chores, took your kids, brought you food, you finished the list. But we offer people our prayer our presence, and our practical support. And in doing so, in the spirit of Jesus, the wounded Savior, we can be Jesus to each other. Friends, imagine being that kind of community together where we could talk about mental health without the shame and the stigma and be Jesus to each other as we walk with each other towards wholeness. If we could do that, you know what? We would make it through. Let me pray a prayer of blessing. Blessed are you who feel like the bad thing. You're everyone's reminder of life's frailty and life's cruelty. Your chronic pain or depression or regular scans remind those around you that life isn't as fair or as easy as we had hoped. 
Blessed are you who try to hide your humanity. You who temper your complaints, who avoid mentioning your next appointment, who pretend you're doing better than you are to make reality a little more palatable for others. You who try and try and try and make yourself easier to love, easier to be around, easier to manage. But dear one, blessed are you because you are not the bad thing. Your illness or grief or despair or addiction is not too much. It's just your humanity showing. And blessed are we who get to see it up close, who despite our own fears and reminders of our finitude get to hold your hand as you face each day with courage, confronting things you didn't choose. Choose. It is this kind of courageous living that kind of shows all the shabby edges that we're so thankful to witness. You, blessed one, remind us that life is so beautiful and life is so hard. And we feel lucky for the privilege to do life with you, no matter how difficult, no matter how messy. You are not the bad thing. You are a gift. And we love every bit of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.